Desi. And I'm Raven. And you're listening to Dreaming in the Dark, the Black fantasy podcast of your dreams. Dreaming in the Dark is a podcast created by Black fantasy scholars Desi Johannes and Raven K. Stringfield, two Black girls with a love of magic that brings the stories we wish we had as children to the forefront. Named after visionary Toni Morrison's treasure critical analysis, Playing in the Dark, our podcast celebrates the creations that censored those usually written in the margins of the fantastic. The aim of Dreaming in the Dark is to craft a place where we explore our visions for Black futures and freedoms and play in the worlds created by Black artists, scholars, and writers. On this episode of Dreaming in the Dark, we'll be talking to best-selling author of A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, Roseanne A. Brown. Rosie was born in classy Ghana and immigrated to the wild jungles of central Maryland as a child. Writing was her first love, and she knew from a young age that she wanted to use the power of writing, creative and otherwise, to connect the different cultures she called home. She graduated from the University of Maryland with a bachelor's in journalism and was also a teaching assistant for the school's Jimenez Porter Writer's House program. Her journalistic work has been featured by Voice of America, among other outlets. On the publishing side of things, she has worked as an editorial intern at Entangled Publishing. Rosie was a 2017 Pitch Wars mentee and a 2018 Pitch Wars mentor. Rosie currently lives outside Washington, D.C., where in her free time, she can be usually found wandering the woods, making memes, or thinking about Star Wars. Welcome to Dreaming in the Dark, Rosie. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I just, I love y'all so much. Y'all are just great. Every time I see all my feeds, I'm like, oh my God, it's Raven and Busy. Love y'all. So thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. Thank you for coming on. We are so excited to have you on as we, you know, launch this podcast and start talking about all things Black Girl Fantasy and talking to all of the amazing authors, artists, creators who are making this genre what it is. And speaking of the genre, the first thing we kind of wanted to ask you to get ball rolling is how did you come to fantasy? And when did you know that you wanted to write it? Okay, so fantasy. So I feel like I'm going to give the answer to like every person who was like every child who's a fantasy fan in the mid 2000s, which is like, the truth is the answer is Harry Potter. And I say this with like, (laughs) There's obviously a lot of stuff going on with like the book and its creator right now. So I want to make that clear caveat. This has nothing to do with the creator who shall not be named and all of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shall but not be named. Like, <laughs> but like kind of my history with that series there is like, like Bessie mentioned, I'm an immigrant from Ghana. And so English actually isn't my first language. And so when we immigrated when I was really young, I was having a very hard time like with my classes in school and everything. And like, I could not understand what was happening. I was falling behind my peers. And it was, a, it was a huge problem, right? So I distinctly remember the moment things started changing. I was at BJ's with my mom. And, like, there was this, like, toy. I think it was some kind of dog. I really, really wanted, right? And so I was like, Mom, Mom, give me the toy. Give me the toy. And she was like, okay, if you can go to the ta- book table and get one book, read the entire thing in English, and tell me what it's about, I'll get you that toy. And I was like, okay, Mom. So, like, I stormed over to the table. And the book that was there was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And, like it just blew my mind open keep in mind i'm like maybe like six or seven at this point i'd like never written a um never read a full book in english all by myself and i was just like you can do this you can put words on a paper and then images happen in a person's mind you can create an entirely new world with the rules you decide and all this and the characters in here it just it just blew my mind open i was like oh my gosh i need to make things that make me feel the way this book is making me feel right now 
And from that moment on, I was just obsessed. I was re like, it was almost a complete 180. Like my teachers were shocked. Like I just was obsessed with reading from after that and like fantasy books, fantasy world. I was reading everything, but fantasy has always been my first love. Like there's just something about just stepping into a world that is just so different from ours and like just oh I just love it I just love fantasy <laughs> yeah absolutely it's so interesting how many people will say fantasy is sort of the entryway to reading for them whether it's you know like uh they end up doing you know going into like adult fiction or children's fiction or whatever but fantasy something about fantasy always seems to anchor this like understanding of what books can be broadly and this idea of the farthest reaches of the imagination um, is something that's really fascinating to me particularly because of the work that black women are doing in that space and how black women are imagining what the farthest reaches of the imagination what new worlds actually new worlds not worlds that have the same norms as our own the same classism mm -hmm. sexism racism as our own but actually new worlds can look like um, and so Maybe the next question to sort of frame it, um, building off of what you just said about the ways that you came to fantasy, can you speak to what writing as a Black woman means to you, the significance of it in this moment, in any moment, I think, to talk about maybe the importance, quote unquote, of Black fantasy, but also the sort of broad implications for you as a, as a writer? I'll start with the hard questions. Okay, okay. We're starting, we're starting right off. <laughs> I guess I think the thing about being a member of the Black community and just the wider Black diaspora is that fantasy, I think, is just inherent to so many Black experiences. Mm -hmm. And like, especially because for us, the fantastical, in so many ways, it's, especially historically in Black communities, the fantastical was not necessarily in the way that you see, like say Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the everyday, it's in the mundane, it's in the beliefs and in the cultures and the way we pass on our stories and all of this. Like it's even like, just to give a very small example from my family, one of the um, things I was told growing up is never sweep after sunset because that will summon spirits, right? And it's one of those things like objectively, like does anyone think spirits knock on wood? Like objectively, like <laughs> our spirits going to come get us? Probably not. Spirits, if you're listening, I didn't say that. But just like the idea that like- Give <laughs> yes, our basis. All, yes. But just the idea that like these fantastical norms and ideas are so embedded into our culture. Like even with a bunch of people who are obviously very educated and very smart and all this, but still things that would be seen as, oh, quote unquote, those are like beliefs that aren't believed anymore or anything. But yeah, it's still so engraved in us in that sense. You know, and just the idea that for us, the fantastical is built into who we are. And it's built into the way we have to navigate the world because I just think as Black people, when you're living in a world, and I mean like just the global society, and I'm in just America, uh -huh. where almost uh -huh. every norm in the world has been created to move against you and to like exist in ways that intentionally harm your own well being, finding, surviving that, and not even just surviving, thriving in that in and of itself is a fantastical practice because statistically we should not be able to do that like statistically we should not be here just by nature of the fact every layer of the system is moved against us so we needed these fantastical elements we needed this to be able to exist and it's just inherently who we even outside of that sort of lens of like the way we move through oppression and struggle even outside that that's just kind of who we are it's how we understand the world it's how we move through the world 
like black cosmology, black, mm -hmm. like just on the different ways, different black cultures relate to nature, relate to the afterlife, relate to all of this. We see this so inherently in the way we move through the world. So for me, I think being a black fantasy writer, being a black woman fantasy writer is just sort of about kind of conti continuing that tradition on mm -hmm. and kind of taking what has been handed to me and kind of adding my own sort of layer to it and then creating something that can keep being passed on to the next round, you know? Like there's very much this feeling like people are like, oh, we just, we've never seen this before. I'm like, okay, but you've never seen this before because what you're reading is about the hobbits and whatever they're up to. I don't know. I've never read Lord of the Rings. But who knows what they be doing out there, you know? No, I, I, you know what? The Shire sounds like a dope place. Like, I'd visit. I'd visit. But it's like, it's like, oh, we've never seen this before. And, like, that's a whole different conversation about, like, what we've seen and not seen in traditional Western publishing. Mm. But just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not there. So I always try and be like, I, like... I'm just like, no, I'm just because this is new to you does not make it new. And I feel like I'm writing a very old, very grand tradition of storytelling that mm -hmm. honestly transcends and goes older, is older than books. Like it's storytelling itself and using stories as a way to pass on and tell the world, I exist, you exist, here's what I think that means. Uh, that was so beautifully said on so many levels. I think I'm really stuck on this um the idea that you were speaking on of the magic being in our everyday in the mundane and i think something that that resonated with me in that is i'm thinking of tony morrison right like we are we are we are bringing tony morrison's work and legacy into the way that we think about the fantastic even though there are many people and probably tony morrison herself who would not have considered her work fan, like fantastic at all um as you said this was the everyday this was this was just how we lived our lives um and so thinking about you know, Toni Morrison, and then, you know, also you mentioned our relationship perhaps to spirits and the dead, you know, I think about Jasmine, Jasmine Ward, and, mm -hmm. you know, there are just so many different people um, that we could, that we could talk about, and so I, I think my next question then would be to ask you who's writing in that sense inspires you, where, where do you start to kind of look for inspirations when you're trying to hang on to this grand tradition of storytelling? For me, it's actually not so much like books. Like, like I said, um, kind of the idea of not necessarily drawing storytelling from different sources. When I think of, for me, which kind of Black fantastical creators are the ones I'm most kind of trying to be in conversation with, it would actually be a lot of traditional African storytellers, a lot of traditional griots. Like in Ghana, we have this tradition called Anansasem, which is essentially, which literally kind of translates to Anansi things, but it's kind of like the overall world for, world, word, sorry there, overall word for our sort of folklore, our stories, even the ones that don't feature Anansi, and just kind of like that entire, just tradition and that entire skill. And um, with Anansi Sam, it's something that's been passed down for so long, and there's a certain rhythm to it. There's a certain movement to it. There's the way these storytellers tell their stories, stories is not of itself it's both a performance and it's a story and it's a lesson and it's just a song and it's so many things in one one sort of package and I think in a lot of ways that is what has been the biggest in influence on me because even before I really started getting in um involved in fantasy in the traditional book sense I knew the 
folktales. I knew the Nazi stories. I knew the like, oh, how did the leopard get his spots? And I knew Br'er Rabbit and all that. And those were passed on orally. Like that was something big with wraiths that I wanted to convey. This uh, idea of a tale that could be told orally. Like I like to tell people in a lot of ways, I think the audiobook is the truest form of wraiths simply because it's meant to be a story that's being told to the reader. It's meant to read like that, um, which I think the narrator did an amazing job pulling that off. But and so in those senses, I think those, in a lot of ways, griots aren't just storytellers, but like they are keepers of history, keepers of cultures, like the stories that they pass on are how people understand their ancestors, where they fall in like the cycle of existence. And so I think those, that's definitely what I was kind of trying to write to with rates and what I think I keep trying going back to in my work in the sense that how do you create work that captures memory, that captures understanding heritage legacy, that captures the bad as well as the good. And that's something, a big thing we see in rates as well. A big part of rates is about generational trauma. It's about legacy. It's about both characters sort of grappling with where they're from and where they're going. And I think that's something that we see a lot in a lot of traditional Black storytelling. So I, I want to move to the next question, but also I just have to insert because uh, you mentioned that the audiobook is oh, the yeah. truest form of Song of Rates and Ruin. I'm going to plug Raven uh, and her amazing uh, relationship with the audiobook currently. So my dad and I are really close and um, I came to the, I want to say that I came to Fantastic and kind of like that sort of thing through him and watching movies and TV shows with him. Um, And so we have this really great relationship where if one of us is doing something or like watching something, the other one is just kind of like, that seems interesting. And so one day I was telling my mom, I was reading A Song of Race and Ruin and I was telling my mom about the story and my dad just happened to come in and was like getting a snack or something but he was listening he was listening really hard as I told my mom what was going on in the book and he was like that sounds interesting I want to read it and I was like you're not going to read the book and he was like if you get me the audiobook I will and so we've been listening <laughs> to the audiobook as a family for the last couple of weeks, um, which has been really fun and a really great way. Um, he loves it. And it's, and it's actually very funny because I think he's not paying attention or he's not listening. And then when it's time to go to the next chapter, he'll like surprise us all and be like, oh, well, this, this like really small detail that happened like two pages before the end of the chapter that was the thing that I was thinking about yesterday <laughs> so oh thank yeah. you I, mean, yeah. I love that I love that I love the idea of the story being like experienced via family and together like that oh I hope please let me know what your dad says about the ending I would love to hear what his thoughts on that Oh, I'm, um, I'm sure he will have lots of thoughts because he currently has lots of thoughts. <laughs> he, he had, um, like, the chapter, the first chapter where we, where we got to meet Karina, he was like, she's kind of bad, ain't she? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I love the best summary, character description. <laughs> well, that's, just the official, that's the next blurb on the sequel, she's kind of bad, ain't she? <laughs> sad. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, talking about the ending, which is uh, all a lot of us have a lot of feelings about that ending, um, which we're not going to talk about just in case there's anybody who hasn't read it yet. But if you are listening and haven't read it, go fix that. Go fix your life. Yeah, go get it. But we are going to talk about the book and craft. 
because the world building, the storytelling, the pacing in this book is amazing. How did you go about crafting this world and thinking through the pace at which you wanted to tell the story, the ways that you thought about plot twists? What did that process look like for you? So here's where I got to be kind of honest because like, I feel like I've gotten lots of compliments about the world, which I love, but like, I'll be honest for the first four drafts or so there wasn't really a world it was kind of soup like I kind of knew what I was trying to do but like it was just all sort of there and it was all very mushy like I know that's a very weird way to describe it but it was just like that's the only word that feels right because I just cannot I don't know how else to explain this idea that everything was there but it also just was not doing anything <laughs> um and I think when things really start to turn around for the race world is when I was like I was looking at the magic system which was also very soggy and I was like, okay, I need to tighten this up. I need to have something clear backbone that extends throughout the book that every character is aware of, that every character understands, or at least every character who's aware of magic understands. Um, and I was thinking about how do I want to anchor the world? Um, how do I want to anchor the magic? And I was thinking about my favorite sort of magic systems and how they have sort of rules and like they have, you know, when a character has broken the rules, you know, when they've gone too far, like stuff like that. And I was like, one thing, um, I can't 100% remember how I got here, but I remember I was thinking about among the Akan people of Ghana, who are my mother's people, we have uh, the day name tradition where the day of the week on which a person is born decides one of the names they're going to have. And it's kind of similar to the Western Zodiac, in which is this idea that like your day has a lot of influence on who you're going to be, the kind of people you're going to be like um, attuned to, that sort of thing. And I was thinking to myself, like, what if you use this as a basic for magic? Like, what if you took it and this idea that the day of the week had power and then gave it literal power, the day of the week on which people are born decides what kind of magic they have. And I was moment, I was like, this is it. This is my crux. This is, and suddenly it became this idea like, okay, if this society has this rule of seven where people are inherently broken down into seven different kinds of people, how do you structure society based on that? How do you have people who move against that? What would moving against that look like? How do you have, how do you set up things like law, organization? How do you set up, people, how they decide marriages, attraction, like love, those types of things. And so for me, I think once I knew the crux of what the world hinged on, that's when things started snapping into place. I'm like, oh, everything about this world, even if it's on a small level, has to tie back to the rule of seven, down to the way characters think about themselves. Like, how do they feel when they're living up to what they're aligned? That's in the book, it's called your alignment. How do they feel when they're in tune with their alignment? Like, if you're a fire-aligned person, do you feel like a fiery personality, haha <laughs> pun, or something like that. But what about when you feel like you're not in tune to your alignment, when you feel like you are against your element, where you feel like, and it's not like just our world where it's like, oh, I feel like a Virgo, but I'm actually really a Pisces. Like, no, this is, there are literal consequences to like not really like aligning yourself with the kind of person that you are meant to be, especially when every layer of society reinforces this. And so I think once I knew that, so on a craft level, that was the moment where things really started coming together. And I have it down now, obviously, I'm talking to you all about it, but the truth is, I was probably around, I'd say I, I'd been working on it for almost two years, working on the book before I really had that down. And to give you all some perspective, I started Rates start of 2016, and it came out, obviously, summer 2020. So it was four years from idea to final publication. So that means almost halfway through this book's entire existence, I didn't have the world down. So just to give you an idea, like when people say like, writing a book is revising and revising and revising yes because the majority of the revisions on this book happened after it sold a lot of people are surprised to hear that but that's just because like sometimes you make one change in your edits that just changes everything else and so 
really don't be afraid to like examine no matter where you're in the process like examine where you are and what you're doing because like I am so glad like at that point I didn't just let myself be like oh well I've been going on for two years and it's sold so clearly it can't be that bad I was like no this is still not as tight as it can be and making that change just kind of I think helped push the book to that next level it needed to go to. I just have a quick side note question because you brought up the alignment system but also thank you for that wonderful uh feedback on craft as someone who is a writer also i just i that is very helpful just to like hear that perspective but um just just for the folks at home who have read um who have read a song of race and ruin uh what is what is what is your uh, alignment so i'm um fire lined, so my uh god would be osibel the leopard and so, which is actually pretty funny because I actually don't think I fit the fire alignment. I don't remember how I decided Saturday would be fire. I knew, because for Karina, I knew I wanted her to be wind. And I also wanted Karina to be born Wednesday. I'm not, I can't fully say why that was important to me, but it was. And it still is for some reason. And Malik, I want Malik to be born Sunday. And I knew I wanted Sunday to be the last day. So that's how Malik ended up Sunday. So from there, I just sort of figured all the rest of them out. That's how the actual day of the sun doesn't fall on our Sunday for that reason. I've had people ask that, like, they're like, is there a reason for that? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's just unfortunate. I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, but, um, so yeah, I'd be fire aligned. And then Malik is obviously life. And then Karina is wind. Uh, I love this just because Malik is my baby. And I like under this, under the system, I am also life aligned. And I just love having something in common with Malik. <laughs> Oh, what about you, Bessie? What is your alignment? I am earth aligned. And it's funny because uh, in a lot of different like magical, fantastical world building type quiz things, I always end up associated with earth somehow. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't particularly like the outdoors, but like in terms <laughs> of the <laughs> steadiness, I guess, like in terms of that idea. And I don't even really feel particularly steady most days, but it's really fun to, to realize how many different ways uh, the universe has conspired to align me with the earth. Um, but I was yet born on a Thursday. Um, and so my deity is Kotoko the porcupine. <laughs> I think that's so adorable. <laughs> I just love it. I really do. I love it. It is. I also love the image of a, a deity that is a porcupine. <laughs> I, I've gotten questions about that one because they're like, how come you have like lion, leopard, like all these like big animals? And they're like, because I, I sort of get it that like people logically think if you're thinking gods and you're thinking sort of animals of Africa, like you think earth, you're gonna think elephant, right? Like a lot of people ask me, why isn't the god elephant? And I'm like, you know what? It makes sense. But there are two reasons why the earth god ended up the porcupine, not the elephant. Number one is that I already had the hippo for water. And in Chi, all the um, god names are um, actual words in Chi, which is one of the languages of Ghana. Hippo is Susono, and then um, elephant is Osono. And I was just like, this is going to confuse people too much if these <laughs> two words are too similar. And like, I'm already throwing a lot at them. And then number two, the porcupine is actually the symbol of the Ashanti kingdom. And so that was sort of the reference to that there. Mm. Uh, yeah, you can um, definitely look more that up. Um, I don't have as much info on me at the moment as I wish I have on that. I used to have it, but my brain is full of gunk right now. But um, that was the symbol um, because the porcupine is seen as this very fierce warrior. It's always very fight. And it's like, you try and attack a porcupine, it's going to be very difficult. Like, so I love it. It doesn't. At, at first doesn't have this like a porcupine well you put a porcupine versus a lion like what but then like you think about it you're like no i can see why people would want to would see a creature like this and be like no wait this 
this thing's bad as shit. Yo, I want to be a porcupine. <laughs> like, I absolutely, I love being a porcupine. I love that being my association. Prickly, yes. steady might not be the, the word I associate with myself, but prickly, yes. on the same page. Yeah, so that was one of my um, sort of real life nods to um, how, um, to sort of the real cultures I was basing with. Um, what There is one more fun fact. Um, how the leopard became the fire one is, there's this one story I was told growing up, how the leopard um, earned his spots. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a long story, but the short version is they were sort of burned onto him. Um, the, uh, it's either a fight with a Nazi or bird rabbit, depending on which version you know. But basically mm-hmm. he sort of loses this thing with him and he gets set on fire and that's how he ha- gets his spot spots and so i was like this is he's a fire god like that's a reference to that story so like even within the world building like like sort of the stories came in through the world building and sort of these little references that i wasn't necessarily expecting people to get off the top of the bat but just like i knew where it was coming from i love that that is so amazing so we get to talk about so many fun things including you know, all of these great fun facts that you have about the book, all the things you love about it. And it's clear how much you, I mean, clearly you spent all this time working on it. It's, it's a labor of love. So I want to talk to you just about what do you love most about Karina and Malik um, or about the book um, and what was possibly your favorite part to work on? I think what I love most about Karina and Malik is like the fact that I really got to write these flawed and messy black characters. Cause like, from the start, Malik and Karina, in a lot of senses, are very traditional heroes. Like, if we are going with the Western tradition of a traditional hero as someone who is sort of assured, someone is doing the right thing, who is fighting for the greater good, like you're looking at your Luke Skywalkers, your Frodo's, your... But also, not even just in Western tradition, but in a lot of sort of um, traditional Black folk tales, or like, at least in the ones I grew up with, they aren't very traditional heroes in those senses either. Like, especially if we're looking at sort of the ideal quote-unquote African man, I'm saying this in quotes because that's not a thing that exists, but what we're taught that means to look like, or the ideal black male, someone who is strong, someone who is very commanding, someone who's very dominant, and blah, 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 blah. Malik is not that. Malik is very much the antithesis of all of that. He's very quiet. He very thinks before he acts. He's not physically strong. He is, at least at first, he's not very good at talking to people. Um, and so I really wanted to write a character who sort of went against all these things. I'm like, can I create a male character who is sort of the opposite of everything Black boys are told they're supposed to be to succeed and still let him be the hero, still let him have the center of the action? And same with Karina. Like, Karina, there's... At first, when I wrote Karina, I was really trying to, like, fit her into the classic Disney princess mold, and that's no shit on Disney princesses. I love Disney princesses. I'm always talking about them on Twitter. But I really wanted her to kind of fit with that mold because, like, Obviously, the black girls don't get to be like heroes, damsels in distress. They don't get to be soft. They get, so I'm like, I'm going to write the softest, nicest, sweetest, most just gentle princess ever because F y'all who say black girls can't be all those things. And of course, y'all have read this book. You know, Karina did not end up like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how, like, especially because it wasn't intentional at first. I kept writing on the page and she kept coming out caustic. She kept coming out sharp. She kept coming out very honestly mean like just objectively very mean um Karina would make me cry if she was real like she, I don't think she liked me that much but um I had to sit down and be like wait 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 in a lot of ways I'm kind of writing to the stereotype here aren't I because like obviously I know very closely the stereotype of what black girls get to be in media and it's always loud it's obnoxious it's 
very sort of sexually promiscuous, like all those sorts of things. I'm like, am I like, am I writing to a stereotype? Am I reinforcing this by writing a character who is honestly all of those things? And then I had to stop and I had to think, wait, 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 this character is coming to me in this way. These scenes are being molded by the fact that she is this way. And it became less about, let me stop making Karina like this and start making her like that. Because in a weird sort of way, that was still letting society's ideas of what she can be like dictate how she ends up. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write this character the way she needs to be for the story. And I'm going to put the work on the audience to think, why is it when you see a Black girl with these traits that you have thought to be stereotypical and negative, your first thought is like, oh, she's just like that because she's Black. Like, why aren't you? I wanted the reader to do that work to go to that deeper level. Because Karina, as the story goes on, we see she's someone who has been through a lot of trauma. She's been through a lot of pain. She has been through a lot. And she's sort of created this armor around herself and created this sort of heart and persona to sort of just survive everything she's gone through. And as she starts to learn to peel that back, um, you start to see sort of a more compassionate, tender person inside that. And it's like, I feel like I really wanted this character, like I really wanted readers, especially non-Black readers, to really see that next level and just have to go to that next level and sit with their own biases and think, why, when I see a Black character acting like this, like, why aren't I giving them the benefit of the doubt? Why aren't I using that empathy to really sort of understand where they might be coming from? And so the problem then became not with Karina, but with why would this world not let Black girls who are loud, who are obnoxious, who are sort of like the quote unquote sassy Black woman, God, I hate that phrase, but like, like why aren't they allowed to exist as they are? Like, why is that? And so that's how I ended up there with Karina. And so getting to write these characters fully aware of how they're going to be perceived, especially by non-Black audiences, but also by Black audiences. Like, I really care, as much as I love the response from everyone, I care most about the response from young Black readers when they see them and they're like, I've never seen a Black character talk about anxiety the way Malik talks about it. Or I never saw a Black girl like Karina who really gets, like, she's angry and she's, like, allowed to be angry. Like, she's the angry Black woman because she deserves to be angry. She's been through some shit. Um, mm-hmm. And I like getting to see that and getting to see their experiences validated. I think that's, that has been my best part of working on the book. That's so beautiful. I absolutely love both of their characters because Black women contain multitudes. Black girls contain multitudes. And I think um, as is happening in a lot of public spaces, we're working out what containing multitudes means, containing joy and rage at the same time. How do we keep both of those emotions and balance them and uh, perform them um, in ways that we understand as fellow Black women, but then also have to sort of be allowed to be ununderstandable, not understandable to um, non-Black people sometimes. Um, so yeah, no, I think so many Black readers are have already been um, and will continue to be moved by this book and by Malik, our favorite soft boy, um, and by Karina, our favorite uh, Black girl badass. Um, and so our last question is, because I know we could talk about Black girl fantasy forever and ever and ever, um, but unfortunately we do have to wrap it up. But our last question is sort of speaking to this year and how amazing 2020 has been specifically for Black female fantasy authors who have been releasing amazing books in a year that otherwise has not been so amazing um (laughs) to say the least um in that being the biggest understatement um aside you have such a powerful cohort and community of black women publishing fantasy right now um jordan ifueco um bethany c morrow 
Um, I mean, Tracy Dion, whose book Legendborn comes out in September. Um, so many amazing Black women are coming out with fantasy that's going to blow all of our minds. Um, for new and emerging Black writers who are looking to find their community, what advice do you have for them, um, particularly maybe those who are writing in this time as well? I think, well, thing, well, first off, a shout out. I love all those women so much. Like, I, you see us on the TL, but, like, I'm always in their DMs and their texts. Like, Tracy's my fanfic buddy. Like, they're just the best. And, like, a lot of that, like, love is just, just so genuine and real. Because I think the thing new and aspiring Black writers, and honestly, mar writers from any marginalized background, but specifically Black writers, have to understand is publishing works really hard to keep that Highlander, Highlander mentality going. The idea, like, there can only be one. The idea that when one Black book succeeds, that's closing the door for all the others because they're like, oh, we've got, we've already got our Black fantasy for this year. We don't need y'all. We're like, we're set. And the thing is, like, it's hard to close yourself off at because there honestly are going to be imprints, our publishers, our editors who think like that. And who, there are people who have had their careers stalled because that mentality has been reinforced on the system level. And so I think the reason this cohort was able to exist is because we were all able to get together pretty early on, especially when the pandemic was first starting and we're, before these books wrapped, we were all sort of seeing the way this was going to happen. And we were just like, the publishing is going to try and sort of turn us against each other and sort of make us see that it's all books are going to be versus each other when the reality is we have way more in common with each other than we're going to have with anyone else because no one else knows what it's like to be a black writer putting out a book at this time debuting a book at this time but each other we have more like to accomplish from working together than we would against one another and so and that's not to say that like oh everything always sunshine roses everyone's always kumbaya blah 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 because like with creative any kind of creative um endeavor it's like it's very emotional you put emotional stuff in your work and sometimes like it hurts seeing like something you want to see happen for you doesn't happen and it happens from somewhere else so you feel like you're not where you want to be in your career but the reality of that is sort of just understanding that like still being able to be present support one another and to be there for one another and help push one another has just been sort of the greatest joy and even has helped navigate those feelings and help sort of mitigate that and understand like as much as I'm still sad like XYZ did not come through for me the fact that it came through for like Tracy who was bomb as hell or Bethany who's bomb as hell or like any of that it's just like yes yes like it gets to a point where their success just it gives you life it gives you support it gives you like look at her killing it and it also kind of at least for me it lights a fire into my ass like oh Jordan's out here killing like this I need to step up my game too because I gotta be working too right and it turns what could have been these competitive rivalry feelings into this sort of energizing like we all we're all gonna move we're all gonna eat like that type of thing mm. and so i really think turn that because the thing is if that energy is gonna be there anyway you may as well find it a way to make it work for you you know i'm very big believer in not sort of trying to suppress how you feel don't act like you don't feel the negative feelings but like really work them in a way you need to and with black writers like just sort of taking that oh it's you versus all the other black writers mentality and flipping it and be like it's us versus everyone else or even just, it's us versus the world. That's what Black people, we've had to do our entire existences. And so I think it was just sort of bringing that into the publishing sphere and creating a space which we could all be there for each other. And so that's my biggest advice. Like, definitely find your people and like, be just, be open to like build with them and grow with them because these people are gonna be your biggest cheerleader. They're gonna be your confidants when things don't work out right. They're gonna be the people who are gonna have your back and publishing is going to tell you that they are your enemies and they're not.
I think it's a fantastic note to end on. Um, and so we want to just thank you so much for your time, Rosie, for, for sitting down with us and, and chatting about all things Black Girl Fantasy and A Song of Race and Ruin. Um, and just ask you if you have any final thoughts that you want to share that we didn't cover. And if you don't, can you tell our listeners where they can find you, social media, websites, et cetera, um, and where they can find your book? Ooh, okay, so I guess last thoughts are just, um, well, first off, thank you all so much for setting this podcast up. I'm just, as much as we need Black writers, I love seeing sort of people within the industry and within the institution, like Black um, critics, reviewers, scholars coming up and like filling these spaces, because that is so vital too. Like people talk about the books, but we can be writing the dopest books in the world, but if the people who are inside the system or who aren't there to be able to actually give these books what they need, that doesn't help. So like seeing you guys doing this work, I just love it. Love you all so much. Um, and just um, obviously we've been seeing a lot of focus on black creators and black work this summer for a lot of very negative reasons. I'm not going to go into that there because we all see what's happening on our timelines. But mm-hmm. I think there's one last thing I want to bring out to people is that I really want to see the energy that I was so grateful to receive and so many black creators were so grateful to receive. Grateful being a loaded word here, but again, different conversation. I want to see that continuing even when there is not national levels of black pain and black trauma going on. I want to see the same support that's pushing these books onto lists, pushing them into awards people's hands, like all that happening in times of normal times. And I want to see that because obviously we've proved we can muster these energy. We can muster this energy to really center Black books. So I want to see that continue. And I want, I, I want to say things are getting better in like sort of incremental ways, but it's still not enough, not fast enough for me. So I want publishing to know you are on notice because we are here, we are doing this, we are not stopping, so get used to it. Um, as for me, I guess the best place to find me is I am at Rosie's Rambles. So that's R-O-S-I-E-S Rambles. That second S is important because someone else had Rosie Rambles and I was not able to get it. So <laughs> get that. Um, I guess what's coming up next for me, I have the sequel to A Song of Rates and Ruin, um, which is called A Psalm of Storms and Silence. I just turned that in on Sunday. Um, so I'm going to get those those back any day now. Who knows? Um, and then I also have my middle grade debut fantasy, Sarah Blotting's Guide to Vampire Hunting coming out with Rick Riordan Presents in summer 2022. So I'm currently working on that and it's just super fun. It's a very Halloween-y book, which I think people, it's it's a little, it's different from race in the sense of the vibe and the atmosphere, but like the core magic black kids, lots of humor is the same. And then my graph, I'm working on an original middle grade graphic novel from Marvel, um, focusing on Shuri and T'Challa, um, but back when they're teens. So it's teen T'Challa, kid Shuri. And so kind of, getting to write like some of the most iconic black superheroes, but as kids, it's just been such a fun experience. So that's kind of what's up next for me. And rates right now, rates can be found um, anywhere major books are sold. Try, support your local indie, ideally. That's um, always great. And just, yeah, if you love the book, just please leave a review, Goodreads, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. That helps so, so much, you guys. And just very, very much loved. Celebrate Black Joy. Celebrate these amazing Black authors. We will make sure and link some of Rosie's socials and places where you can buy our book and support indies in our socials as well when we post the episode. But thank you so much for joining us on this week of Dreaming in the Dark. Tune in next time for some more celebration of Black Girl Fantasy. Um, And we will see you then. Bye!